Hello, welcome to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Join us each week as we hear from God's Word, as we seek to prayerfully proclaim the crucified Christ as Lord of all. Hi there and welcome to the Bible Talks. It's nice to see you. How to Ruin a Church is our title, not How to Run a Church. There's a little I in there, How to Ruin a Church. Let's pray for God to help us understand this passage and then let's dig in together. Please pray with me. Our Father, we're really thankful to you that we can take time out from studying all kinds of other things to studying the most important thing, what you have spoken to us in the Bible. Please help us to understand this passage by your Spirit so that we can respond to Jesus the right way and have life in him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when you think of church, what do you see? When you think of church, do you see something that is really important? Maybe when you think of church, you don't see much importance at all. Maybe you see just an old building that is empty most of the week and filled with old people on Sunday, or perhaps partially filled. You don't have to read the Bible for too long before it becomes clear that when the Bible talks about church, it is speaking about a collection of Christians not a collection of bricks. Church is a gathering of Christians gathering regularly at a place on earth because they have been fundamentally gathered around Christ and to Christ in heaven. Now, it's that gathering on earth regularly that we are focusing on today. And maybe you still don't feel as though it's very important. I guess even some Christians sometimes don't feel as though church is very important. Maybe feel as though it's a bit of an optional extra. You might go to church if it fits in with uh, the other things that you're doing on the weekend. But maybe other things, well, there's a few too many of them. They're a bit too important. Can't go to church. Your attendance at the gathering does tell you something about the value, the importance that you think church has. But as we work through this passage, we're going to see lots of reasons why this church gathering, these church gatherings are really important. And why the Apostle Paul is going to underline this importance by bluntly stating that if anyone destroys that gathering, that church, that temple, God will destroy him. It's pretty blunt, isn't it? Do you think we might need to reconsider the importance of our own church gatherings? Do you think we might need to reconsider what we do in these gatherings and how we play our part in these gatherings? Do you think we might even need to reconsider which gatherings we belong to. It's a pretty serious issue because some gatherings of God's people are not going to help Christians get off the launch pad in life with God. We're at point one, failure to launch, and have a look at verse one. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Now, remember, Paul is writing to people inside the church, at Corinth, but he says he is struggling to identify them, to address them as spiritual. Now, we saw last week that the only thing that makes anyone spiritual is having God's spirit at work in them. But here, Paul is struggling to speak about these Corinthians as spiritual. So are they believers in Jesus who have God's spirit or are they not? Paul also goes on to call them people of the flesh. Again, it doesn't sound very Christian. Last week, we saw, we saw that the opposite of being spiritual was being natural human, in a sense, just flesh. 
That sounds like a lot like what we're talking about here, a person who's of the flesh that's on view here. So is Paul writing to these Corinthians as believers in Jesus or as unbelievers? Well, did you notice that Paul doesn't just call them infants? He calls them infants in Christ. They are definitely in Christ. And remember back in chapter 1 that even with all their problems, all their mess, Paul thanked God that God had saved them and sanctified them through Christ. These Corinthians, they are believers, but they have failed to grow. They have failed to launch spiritually. Have a look at verse 2. Uh, chapter 3, verse 2. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now, you are not yet ready. Paul gave the Corinthians baby food when they were baby Christians. That was probably four or five years earlier. But the problem now, four or five years later, is that they are still on the baby food. They should be spiritually strong and mature by now, but they are somehow stuck in juvenile behavior. Have you heard the term man baby? Yeah, yeah, movie about it, that kind of thing. It's been gaining popularity. I actually came across a headline with it in it last week. Uh, Thank you, Your Majesty, for giving spoilt man baby Prince Harry and his wife a kick up the backside. I think that's when they got kicked out of Kensington Palace or something like that. Uh, Yeah, man baby, it's, it's making headlines. Uh, Why is this man-baby accusation being levelled at Prince Harry? The world used to love Prince Harry. He was our favourite royal. What happened? His behaviour happened, didn't it? People just think he's a man-baby because of the way he's behaved. It's all about his behaviour. And it's exactly the same for the Corinthian man-babies. Have a look at verses 3 and 4. And I was, chapter 3, Carl, chapter (laughs) 3. For you are still of the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? It is their behaviour that shows their spiritual immaturity. They are behaving like people who don't even have the Spirit of God at work in them. They are behaving just like every other human in Corinth who hadn't been transformed by the Spirit of God. Their spiritual babyhood is revealed in their factional fighting and bickering, their desire to champion particular leaders over others. It all just speaks about their immaturity, their lack of spiritual growth. These are very human ways of thinking and behaving. They would have been very common amongst the other citizens of Corinth But God rescues his people from this kind of infantile behaviour. And he does it through the teaching of his word and the powerful work of his spirit. So, why hasn't it worked? If God rescues people from this kind of infantile behaviour, through the teaching of his word and the transforming power of his spirit, why hasn't it worked in Corinth? I thought this is the kind of question you might like to chat about with the person next to you. So I've put it on the screen. Oh, oh, that's that's ugly. Uh, I think there's an if there. If God grows people through his word and spirit, why hasn't it worked here? I think that's what the question should be. Why don't you have a chat about it with the person next to you? Go for it. All right, let's have a think about this together. Why hasn't it worked here? We're at point two, finding the problem. 
Paul doesn't immediately tell us why the Corinthians are still babies, but the rest of the chapter makes it clear that the way church leaders minister to God's people makes an enormous difference in the growth of God's people. To explain the relationship between church leaders and church members, Paul establishes a couple of metaphors, word pictures. The first is the gardener and the second is the builder. So let's have a look at them, verses 5 and 6. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants, through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. God's church is described here like a garden where individuals are like plants that should grow under the care and nurture of their leaders. And what are the leaders in this image? They are servants who serve the garden by sowing the seeds or watering the plants. Now, servants is interesting language, isn't it? Servants is, um, is really interesting in view of the leadership struggles and the bickering that's been going on about who, who I follow who and who. It's very interesting. Servants. Um, Paul puts a pin in that balloon, doesn't he? To, to kind of the, all that blowing up church leaders one over the other and boasting in, in a church leader. Paul just kind of <coughs> puts a pin in it. See, a servant is not a high-status individual. The modern-day equivalent, I think, is an Uber delivery bike rider. Not something that your parents hope you take on as a full-time career for the rest of your life. That's kind of what we're talking here. Servant, not high-status, just a hard worker who has a job to do. Being a leader in God's church should not be a high-status, high-profile gig. The servants have been given a job by God, some servants, their job is to start the plants, plant the seeds. Other servants, their job is to water them, help them grow. Let's have a look, verses 7 to 9. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labour. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. God does use planters and waterers to grow his church. But this verse, these verses tell us that the real power comes from God who gives the growth. So the servant should not be bickering about who has the most important role. Verse 8 says something interesting. He who plants and he who waters is one. What does that mean? I think it basically means that they both have the same rank. One's not more important than the other. They're, they're one in the same rank is what's going on here. Um, they're not more important than each other. And if you really want to talk about importance, you could even say that neither of them are that important. Neither of them are anything. Who's the important one? God who gives the growth is everything, the verses say. But if God gives the growth, it does push us back to our little question that we're thinking about, doesn't it? That we're grappling with. If God gives the growth, why haven't these Corinthians grown? Why are they still man-babies and woman-babies? Let's go with it. Hold that thought. Paul is getting there. Are you starting to see it? But before we go there, we need to see that it makes no sense to worship human church leaders. That is the problem that human wisdom causes in God's church in Corinth. Paul cuts right across the competition by declaring that church leaders are just servants. They're just doing their job. 
They are not competing for the Academy Award for Best Church Minister. That's human wisdom thinking. Good leaders are not doing that. Leaders who think with God's wisdom happily accept the role of servant. Leaders who think with God's wisdom are not competing against each other for, for greatness or for human worship because they know that God alone deserves that worship because he alone is the great one who empowers the growth. Paul changes the metaphor in verse 9 from gardening to building. Let's have a look. Verses 9 and 10. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. Church leaders may be servants, but did you notice they have the privilege of being called God's co-workers there? It's a real privilege, isn't it? Working with God in growing his beautiful garden or building his beautiful temple. What a privilege to be co-workers with God as he works out his great purposes for the world. It is a privilege that I encourage you to seek if God has given you the kind of gifts that would be helpful for God's church as a leader to, to build it. It's a wonderful privilege and if you're gifted to do it, being God's co-worker is a privilege you want to you seek. The Apostle Paul speaks about his own service beside his master. He says, by God's grace, he laid the foundation for the church in Corinth. The Apostle Paul was in Corinth for about a year and a half. You can read about it in Acts. And um, he laid the foundation during that time. And he tells us the exact materials that he used for the foundation in verse 11. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. There is the exact foundational material, Jesus Christ. That's where Paul founded the Corinthian church. Paul did it by teaching the truth about Jesus so that the Corinthians could build their lives upon Jesus. But when Paul had to move on, about a year and a half later, Paul had to move on to proclaim Jesus in other places. That was his job. He was the seed planter, remember? Someone had to come in and do the watering. And so he had to hand the building project, in a sense, over to other builders. How did they build? Well, you can't change the foundation. There is only one foundation, Jesus Christ. So they had to build on that foundation. But once the foundation is laid, the building, well, the rest of the building can get a bit shoddy. I know this is hard to believe when you look at construction management students, but sometimes building work can be a bit shoddy. Can you believe it? Let me show you a few of my favourite examples up on the screen. I just love the fall away window. I, I just think it's, it's beautiful. I, I'd love one in my house. Uh, next. Uh, oh, come on. Come on. It's hard to make bridges meet in the middle. Give, give them a break. Give them a break. Next. This is genius. Sometimes I'm upstairs and I really want to get out of the house quickly. You need a door up there. It's, it's genius. Uh, we've got, got another one? Oh, cabinet makers. Cabinet makers. Yes, we love cabinet makers. Uh, next. Uh, this, this, one's this one's kind of more just letting me have one dig at the engineers. Um, although you've got to think about it. Um, if the engineers had one dig, we probably wouldn't have this problem. Uh, good on you, engineers. We love you. Um, and uh, last but not least... 
There's a lot to love about this. There's, there's a lot of bored kiddies out there who need a little bit more excitement in their life. So I'm all for this kind of building. Um, construction management students, we love you. We love you. I know it's hard to believe, but sometimes building work can be a little bit shoddy. And the same, sadly, is true for those whose work is to build God's people up. So we're at point three, reward and loss. Have a look at verses 12 to 14. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay or straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. We'll stop it there for the moment. Um, it's worth noticing that God is the one who judges the work done by his church leaders. It is not for church members to judge the work of their leaders. They can leave it to the boss himself, the head builder. He will judge the work when the time is right. Now, you probably know that different church leaders try to build God's church using different methods. And not every method of church building is approved by the head builder. I think that is what the different building materials are referencing there. Did you notice them? Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay or straw. Some of these building materials are more likely to last the test of time than others, particularly if you live in the vicinity of big bad wolves. And I think that is basically the point. The work of church leaders can be valuable and long-lasting or it can be insecure and precarious. Judgment Day for church builders, though, will not just be about a heavy-breathing lupin canine. The fire that these verses speak about is referencing the day of God's judgment. When Jesus, the judge of all the world, the righteous judge of all the world, will judge all people with justice and truth. And that day of judgment, that is the day that will disclose or reveal the work that each church leader has done. What we need to think about is how. How will that day of judgment reveal the quality of the building work? So you need to have a think about it, and then I'll talk about it. Here's the question. How will the day of judgment reveal the quality of the building work? Go for it. Okay, let's have a think about this together. Okay, let's, um, let's begin with the good news. The good news is outlined in verse 14. The good news is that many Christians whose leaders have taught them to trust only in Jesus will be saved from the fire of God's judgment. The good workmanship of those leaders will be demonstrated, revealed, brought to light by the salvation of their people. And I think the reward that these leaders will have is the joy that their beloved church members are receiving salvation from God and are able to share in God's kingdom forever. Paul expresses a similar idea about rewards in a few, uh, where is it? 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20. Paul says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. I think the reward is actually people you love and have served who are going to share in God's kingdom for all eternity. 
And what better reward could you possibly receive? If you think that rewards in heaven are all about getting the bigger apartment a little bit closer to the pool, I think you haven't quite understood heaven yet. But sadly, there is not just good news in these verses. The reality of God's judgment is a stark, intense reality. Shoddy building work in God's house will lead to some people not being saved from God's judgment. And that is incredibly sad. We need to read about it in verse 15. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. People who have perhaps been attending a church regularly for their entire lives can be lost in God's judgment because the leaders of those churches or that church didn't build with the truth of the gospel. Wow, that is heavy, isn't it? And we know this from hard personal experience. We know that there are churches that you can turn up to faithfully week after week after week in our city where you won't be encouraged to put your trust in Jesus. There are churches that you can turn up to week in, week out for your entire life that won't teach you from the Bible. And sadly, judgment day is coming. Can you imagine the loss it would be to you if the people of your ministry were destroyed in God's judgment because you hadn't built them up by preaching Christ? In this verse, I hope you can see just how much the Apostle Paul is committed to preaching salvation by God's grace. I think it's really clear in this verse. This church minister, he escapes with his own life, in a sense, from the judgment of God. He is not judged by his works that have been horrendous. He hasn't, his people are destroyed. He hasn't served them well. But he escapes. Why? Because God's salvation is by grace. Through Jesus Christ, I assume that's, that's the only reason he escapes. It is so good that salvation is not by works, even for church leaders. Salvation for anyone, church ministers included, is only ever by God's grace, through faith in the cross of Jesus. But I want you to imagine being saved by God's grace and realising that your ministry had failed to proclaim that grace. The loss that is suffered here, I think, is the inverse of the reward that the, uh, the good builders have had. The inverse is the sadness of not having your people with you. I know it's, it's, there's some complications and so it is a little bit tricky trying to work out these rewards and this loss. But I think that's what it is. It is the people that you've served that is going on. It seems that after Paul laid the gospel foundation... Whoever built upon that foundation in Corinth has, has not been building with God's wisdom, with the foolish-looking gospel, with the crucified Messiah. And what we're seeing here is that churches can be severely damaged by leaders with shoddy building methods. And there seems to have been some really bad building going on in the church in Corinth, and it's created some man-babies who have not grown. Now, just before we move on, there are two more verses here that are important for us to understand well. It's verses 16 and 17. They're a little bit of a, a, little bit of a kind of diversion, but we just need to go there. 
Uh, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Now, Paul unpacks this temple imagery a little bit further in these verses. And you're probably aware that God dwells amongst his people. Um, And that is why the gathering of God's people, it can be termed in the Bible, a temple. It's like the gathering is, is like a temple where God dwells. Now, interestingly, a single Christian will be referred to as a temple in just a few chapters' time. And again, it works on the same logic. If God's spirit dwells within you, then you are a temple of God, a temple of God's Holy Spirit. Um, Single Christian, rightly called a, a temple, but a group of Christians whom God dwells amongst, also called a temple. Here in this chapter, we're talking about the whole gathering of Christians being referred to as God's temple. The you here is a plural you that we can't differentiate in English, sadly, but in the original Greek, it is clearly a plural you. It's the group that, God, that are the temple that God dwells among. Now, what I want you to see is that God takes the destruction of his temple very seriously, and that perhaps should not surprise us. Even people who do not know the real God take desecrating temples very seriously. You may have seen this particular Mayan tower. Uh, you may have seen this because it's, um, it's been in the news because, well, the locals don't like people climbing on it and there's actually laws that say you're not allowed to climb on it. But sadly, next slide, uh, this guy up here is a tourist who is climbing on it. And there was another one. Uh, could we go to the next slide? This lady not only climbed but decided to do a bit of a TikTok dance as well. Well done you. Now the problem is that when you're up that high on this, uh, this particular temple in Mexico, um, it takes a while to get down. And word gets around to the locals that someone's desecrating their temple. And when you get down, there's suddenly a lot of locals who are pretty unhappy with you desecrating their temple. And it gets pretty ugly. This is the young TikTok lady. And this is the guy about to be hit in the head with that stick. Uh, They take their temples pretty seriously, and these are people who don't even know the true God. If even people who do not know the true God take the sanctity of their temple that seriously, it's understandable that the true God takes the sanctity of his true temple even more seriously. But what's interesting in these verses, 16 and 17, is that there is no escaping through the flames. I think this temple destroyer here is not even a believer in Jesus. He is not saved by God's grace. He is just an outsider who has harmed God's people, has destroyed God's temple, and there is no salvation for him without Jesus. We're at our last point, point four, the underlying problem. The underlying problem that causes all of this trouble in God's church is people living and teaching by the wisdom standards of this world rather than living by the foolish-looking wisdom of a crucified Messiah. And that is exactly where Paul goes in the last section of our passage. Have a look at verses 18 to 20. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise." For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. Where does human wisdom get you in church? 
The Corinthians show us exactly where it gets you. It gets you a divided church of spiritual babies who can't get along with each other because of their rivalry and their jealousy and their worshipping of their chosen church leader. It is an unspiritual mess. And the Apostle Paul is showing us how they got there. The leader or the leaders who were entrusted to teach them God's foolish looking truths in the gospel instead taught them the wisdom of the world. Do you think it could happen today? Could we fall for the same problem? Could our churches be ruined by the same problem? Well, you know, I think it's, um, it's a lot more common than we might even realise, sadly. See, there are a few sh fairly shameful bits of God's wisdom that churches are feeling a lot of pressure to abandon even right now. Churches all over the world are feeling tempted to adopt the world's wisdom about marriage. God's shameful wisdom is that marriage is a lifelong committed union between one man and one woman. The world thinks that is absolutely foolish. And lots of churches are feeling the pressure to give in to the world's wisdom on this one. Church leaders also can easily fool ourselves into thinking that we are wise in this age as we make church more appealing to the world by, by chucking out the embarrassing bits of God's wisdom. Do you know, churches that easily and readily adopt the wisdom of the world are often called liberal churches, small l, not big L, liberal party, Australian liberal party. We're not talking that. We're talking small l, liberal, from the same root that we get liberation and liberty. It's, it's that kind of freedom in a sense. And what we're talking about is freedom to choose, pick and choose which bits of God's word you want to believe and which bits you don't want to believe. And generally the bits that you choose are the bits that the world will be really happy with. And uh, generally the bits that you choose to throw out are the harder to hold embarrassing bits that people in the world don't like so much. Now churches that um, adopt this liberal kind of theological stance will often get some pretty good press initially and will be applauded and loved in secular society. They will be called well-reasoned, modern, enlightened religious people. And let's face it, wouldn't you like to be called that by the world? On the other hand, churches that hold fast to the gospel and teach the Bible with the gospel of Jesus as its centre, we call them evangelical churches. They're of the gospel, evangel, they're of the gospel. Now, they will obviously be a lot less popular in the wider community because they keep holding on to the unfashionable views that God speaks in the Bible, that perhaps the world doesn't like so much. Now, which type of church would you expect to grow and which type of church would you expect to go backwards? Liberal? Evangelical? Surely you would expect that the popular liberal churches would grow and the unfashionable evangelical churches would die. You would expect that, surely. But history keeps showing us that the exact opposite happens. Liberal churches, surprisingly, keep decreasing and slowly dying and evangelical churches, for some reason, seem to grow. Now, it's not, it's not completely, you know, total, every, every evangelical church is going to be growing and every liberal church is going to be dying. But as the trend goes, 
that is a clear trend. You can see it in denominations like the Uniting Church, where I have in, uh, evangelical friends in the Uniting Church who are often frustrated by the liberal theology that the, the whole denomination takes on. There are still a few good evangelical Uniting Churches, but on the whole, the denomination is dying, fading fast. You can see it in the Anglican Church around Australia. If you've only ever grown up in Sydney and seen Sydney kind of Anglican churches, that is not normal. Because in Sydney, the Anglican churches tend to be evangelical. But around the rest of Australia, the Anglican churches tend to be liberal. And weirdly, in Sydney, the Anglican churches are growing on the whole. And around the rest of the country, the liberal churches in the Anglican denomination are dying away, getting smaller and more irrelevant. It seems counterintuitive, but God's wisdom works and the world's wisdom fails. And when we build churches on one or the other, there will be very different outcomes. And that brings us to an awkward place. We have seen clearly that all churches are not equal. There can be vastly different methods of ministry at play in different churches. And that means some churches are going to be really good for your Christian growth and other churches are going to stunt your Christian growth. Now, a couple of weeks ago, in week one, Emily asked a really good question in this area. We'll put the question up on the screen. It was in response to, um, in chapter one, uh, verse 12, we saw that these divisions, I follow, I follow, I follow. And Emily suggested in her question, should we encourage people to join one uni Christian group or church over another or are we behaving like verse 12? I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. That kind of thing. It's a really good question, Emily. Thank you for asking it. Um, are we just being factional if we encourage people to just go to good university Christian groups or just to good churches? It might look a bit factional, but it's not. It is wisdom because you need to be under a ministry that will grow you in God's wisdom. In fact, in Paul's logic, it is the wisdom of the world that causes these factions and rivalries. So choosing to go to a good church or a good university Christian group that trusts God's wisdom should actually protect you from the folly that leads to these factions and rivalries. And let me say the hard thing once very clearly. If you are now at a church that is not teaching you to trust in the foolish-looking gospel, it is probably already stunting your growth in Christ and you should think about whether you need to move to a church that will teach you to trust in the foolish gospel of Christ. Now, I've laboured this point because it's so important. Let me fly through the last two sub-points if you are at a good evangelical church that has good leaders who teach you about Christ crucified, or if you're at a good Bible study group where the leaders are good and they're teaching you similarly about Christ crucified, or if you're at a good university ministry where the leaders trust the gospel and speak about Christ crucified, please don't boast about your leaders. They are just servants. They are just other humans doing their job, serving their true master. It is their master that deserves the glory. So please give the glory where it is due, where it is truly deserved. Thank God for good leaders as they serve you and pray for those who don't have good leaders who are serving with the foolish gospel 
But please don't boast and don't glorify human leaders. The last couple of verses, verses 21 to 23. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. This verse says you don't belong to your leaders, your leaders belong to you. If you trust in Jesus, the Bible is really clear that you are united with Christ and that means that everything that belongs to him, he shares with you. Uh, Ephesians 4 tells us that even the leaders who serve you have been given to you. Um, Ephesians 4, 11 to 13, and he gave, God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. It's a beautiful verse that speaks about growing out of being a man baby. And the way God does it is by giving you the leaders who will serve you with the truth. That means Christ has given all of these people as good gifts to his church to, to build it well. And I guess that means I'm in your hands. All ministry leaders are. We are here to serve you, to help you grow to maturity in Christ. So I want to encourage you to choose really wisely the ministries where you allow the leaders to shape you. Choose ministries where the foolish gospel dominates. Don't mess around in other ministries where you are not being served the true wisdom of God. You need the gospel. Let's pray. Our Father, we're really thankful to you that uh, you are so kind to give us the truth about Jesus in the gospel. We're so thankful to you that uh, we can trust in that gospel and be safe on judgment day. We're thankful for the leaders who've taught us the gospel faithfully and we pray for those whose leaders are not teaching them the gospel faithfully. Please have mercy on them and provide them with new leaders, a new ministry. Our Father, we pray that you might uh, help us to have leaders who love you and serve you. And we pray, Lord, that um, they might help us grow to maturity. Please do your good work in us by your word and your spirit. And please give us leaders who will teach us your word in a way that enables us to grow. And so we pray all this for the glory of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Thanks for tuning in this week to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Make sure that you're subscribed on your regular podcasting app. And why don't you check us out on Facebook, YouTube, or visit our website at campusbiblestudy.org.